You are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m., and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. We get support from the Center for the Arts, presenting bluegrass and picking sensation, the Jacob Jilloff Band, on Saturday, August 21st at 7 p.m. Tickets and information at thecenterforthearts.org. Tonight, right after the California Report, we'll take a brief look at regional news and weather before listening to Hospitality House's Needs of the Week, followed by Bravehearts. We close with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. California is now the first state in the country to require all K-12 teachers and staff be vaccinated against the coronavirus or be tested weekly. Uh, We think this is the right thing to do, and we think this is a sustainable way to keeping our schools open and to address the number one anxiety that parents like myself have. I have four young children. And that is knowing that the schools are doing everything in their power to keep our kids safe. That's Governor Gavin Newsom, who also said the new mandate covers more than 300,000 teachers, including those working in private schools. Several school districts around the state, including San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, and Long Beach, have already implemented similar vaccine or testing requirements. The California Teachers Association and another union representing school staff support Newsom's measure. Districts have until mid-October to comply fully with the order. Meanwhile, Stanford University will require its students to undergo weekly COVID-19 testing regardless of their vaccination status. Beginning on August 15th, students who live both on campus and in off-campus housing provided by the university and those coming to campus for in-person instruction will require the weekly tests. Students will be provided a self-collection nasal swab kit and get their results within 24 hours. Only a handful of other universities across the country are requiring students to be regularly tested for COVID-19, no matter what their vaccination status. They include USC, Princeton, and Yale. Turning now to politics, California voters will soon be getting vote-by-mail ballots for the gubernatorial recall election. And Election Day itself, September 14th, is only about a month away. Statewide recall elections are pretty, pretty rare. So we thought this would be a good time to review some recall voting basics with California's top election official, Secretary of State Dr. Shirley Weber. She walked us through some recall voting fundamentals, including what the recall ballot will look like? Well, on the recall ballot, you're going to see really just two questions. And the first question will be, do you want to recall of the governor of California, Governor Newsom? And that's a yes, no question. And then you answer a second question that says, if for some reason he is recalled, who would you choose as his replacement? And there are about 47 names for a replacement. And then you choose a replacement. And I was going to say, the in order to recall the governor, you have to have 50% plus one. You have to have a majority of the votes cast. And if that if there's 50% plus one, then uh, the second question really becomes extremely important because then that says who is going to replace him. And in that uh, case, you don't have to have a majority of the votes. You just have to have the most votes. So if the governor isn't recalled, if there's a less than 50 percent number for that first question, then the second question about a replacement is essentially moot. 
It's it's a moot question at that point, yes, because uh, it it has no meaning because we're not doing a recall. We're not going to remove the governor. Yes. Do you have to vote on both ballot questions or can you do just one or the other? You don't have to vote on both questions. Whatever you vote on will be a valid ballot. In other words, if you choose uh, if you choose to say yes or no uh, on number one, but not pick a replacement, it's still a good ballot. If you don't pick yes or no on the first one and just choose a replacement, it's still whatever you mark on that ballot will be valid. And so uh, we're cur- we obviously encourage people to do both so that they can have some say in in whether they want to recall or not. But equally important, if even if they vote no on recall, uh, they do want to have or should want to have some input into who basically replaces the government governor in case their vote in case they lose it and and actually the person is recalled. So uh, we encourage people to take do both. But whatever you do will count. And of course, I assume along with the mail-in ballots, people will still have plenty of other voting options when it comes to the recall election. Yes, uh, the legislature has has, has uh, decided in terms of its funding and support that we'll have an election similar to the election we had in November, where everyone gets a mail ballot, uh, because obviously we still want to um, keep people safe and, and not have to force everyone to go into the bo- uh, into the polling places to vote. But we'll also have ballot boxes like we had before. We'll have more days for voting. Some counties may have up to 11 days to vote because of the size of the counties. There will be voting on, uh, there will be voting centers uh, that will be there. There will be ballot boxes that will be available at, at uh, various locations and your registrar voter will have that information. So we, we saw a tremendous turnout in the last election in November, not just only because of the issues that were there, but because we made it very convenient for people to vote. It wasn't a, a high stake, one, one day or no day at all kind of concept. And, uh, and we realized that that really turns out the vote in almost in every state when you have those options available. And I know cost shouldn't be important when it comes to elections. Democracy is priceless after all. But let's do talk dollars and cents for a moment. How much approximately is this recall election going to cost the state of California? I think minimally it'll be about $276 million, okay, uh, a, a quarter, over a quarter billion dollars. It may go as high as three to $400 million, yes. It's extremely expensive. All right. That is Dr. Shirley Weber, Secretary of State for the great state of California. Dr. Weber, have a good recall election management time. <laughs> that's a good that's a good title. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, good to be on your show and hope every Californian will go and vote. That's extremely important. And finally, this morning, the state Supreme Court has rejected a challenge by two Republican lawmakers who argued that Governor Newsom exceeded his authority by issuing emergency orders during the pandemic. Assemblymember James Gallagher of Yuba City and Kevin Kiley of Rockland had challenged Newsom's emergency powers, saying he didn't have the right to issue executive orders, like requiring vote-by-mail ballots be sent to all California voters. But the state's high court ruled that under the 1970 Emergency Services Act, the governor is given broad powers during emergencies, including the ability to alter or create new laws. Many Republicans have cited Governor Newsom's orders as a key reason for why he should be recalled. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And Stanford Medicine, 
protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And that is the California Report for Thursday, August 12th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. According to Ubinet.com, Nevada County Public Health reported 29 new confirmed COVID-19 cases today. 547 are active and 23 people are hospitalized. Three are in the ICU. It's fair time here in Nevada County, but our community is currently experiencing a dangerous surge of COVID-19 infections fueled by the highly contagious Delta variant. A gentle reminder, to protect the health and safety of our community, the Nevada County Fair, the Nevada County Public Health Department, Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital, and health leaders from across the community are strongly recommending that all who attend the fair wear a mask, both indoors and outdoors, regardless of vaccination status. In good news, Nevada County's Caleb Dardick released a statement today that says, quote, One week after calling for donations for the River Fire survivors, the Nevada County Relief Fund has raised over $110,000. came from 355 generous local donors and another $50,000 from the Placer Community Foundation. The Nevada County Relief Fund continues to solicit donations at nevcorelief.org. That's N-E-V-C-O-R-E-L-I-E-F dot org. Turning now to regional weather in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight... Partly cloudy, with a low around 70 degrees. Friday will be sunny and hot, with a high near 96. Tomorrow's AQI for Grass Valley in Nevada City will be 122. Unhealthy for sensitive groups. Turning now to Truckee and Lake Tahoe. Tonight, isolated showers and thunderstorms before 8 p.m., then widespread haze and smoke, with a low around 53. On Friday, expect widespread haze and smoke before 2 p.m., then isolated showers and thunderstorms. Otherwise, sunny with a high near 88. Tomorrow's AQI for Tahoe and Truckee will be 150, unhealthy for sensitive groups. And finally, for Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 66 degrees. Friday will be sunny and hot with a high near 98. The AQI for the Valley tomorrow is expected to be moderate at 85. Next, let's listen to Hospitality House's Needs of the Week, followed by Bravehearts. I'm Christina Upkarin, Marketing and Development Specialist at Hospitality House. Hospitality House is a year-round emergency homeless shelter for the general homeless community in Nevada County. 
And since the onset of the pandemic, we've shifted into a 24-7 operation, working in partnership with multiple agencies around town in a collective effort to help as many people as possible in crisis. And the needs of the shelter for this week are blankets to incise, bottled water, deodorant, disposable masks and gloves, headphones, new pillows, paper plates, paper towels, plastic utensils, toilet paper, travel bags, duffel bags, and backpacks, men's underwear sizes medium, large, and extra large, women's underwear sizes small, medium, and large. Please drop off urgent items or mail them to Utah's Place, located in the Brunswick Basin, past the DMV at 1262 Sutton Way in Grass Valley. For a tax receipt, please ring the doorbell and wait for someone to come outside to assist you. We greatly appreciate the community's help at such times of uncertainty. In the words of Utah Phillips, if we all stick together, we'll all get what we need. Let's listen now to Bravehearts. This week, Jamal Walker shares his wisdom about how empathy and forgiveness of yourself and others can foster inclusion, common humanity, and compassionate action. Welcome to this edition of Bravehearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. Part four of Jamal Walker on the empathy and forgiveness we need to address these crises. So we have to have empathy for one another and we have to be willing to forgive each other in advance for the mistakes that we've already made and the mistakes that we're going to make. In uh, my organization, Creating Communities Beyond Bias, we have a set of agreements that we ask everyone to adhere to when we enter into discussion or workshops. You know, forgiving people in advance. We all need forgiveness for um, being imperfect, for trying to manage this human experience with all of the trauma that we all endure at some point in our lives, at various points in our lives, and try to remain human. Since you are so familiar with this community and all it all it is, you know, it's mm-hmm. shortcomings as, as well as you've been here for 30 years, so there's something that must have kept you here. Mm-hmm. What do you want the community to know moving more and more towards this place of what we call inclusion? common humanity, compassionate action? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that just like any community, it starts with really taking the inner journey and looking at where do I come up against my own edges? And by edges, I mean like what are the areas that I run up against in my own thinking and my own belief systems that cause me to Uh, want to either um, mistreat someone else or not acknowledge the mistreatment that's happening to someone else. Yeah, what are what are my own internal triggers? Where does my belief system stop me from being able to be 
more compassionate. What are the things that I learned about this group of people or that group of people that are not true? Do you have any stories of humanness that you would like to share at the end here? Well, you know, I'll share a favorite story that uh, many years ago I was had been uh, married to my then wife at the time for maybe a year. And we went out, so this is about oh, 19, 20 years ago. And we went up to Nevada City to one of the local watering holes to go just party and dance. And uh, we were with her sister and brother-in-law. And we got there a little early, so weren't very many people uh, in the establishment. And there was this, this man of uh, European descent. Um, incidentally, I don't refer to white people as white people anymore because white is not a people. Wow. Um, okay, I like uh, that. So, a mm-hmm. uh, man of European descent who uh, looked at me as soon as we walked in the door, uh, especially because my wife is of European, my ex-wife is of European descent. Um, as soon as we walked in the door, he looked at me like he wasn't happy to see me with this European woman. So, they all noticed it and felt it my wife and I and, and, and her family. And uh, they were a little nervous about it. And uh, so I walked up to him, smiled and said, hi, how you doing? My name is Jamal, what's your name? He told me his name. And then he says, so you like white women? Now I could have chosen to be offended, but I chose to take a different tack. And I said, well, I guess so, I married her. And then I chuckled, and he chuckled, and then the rest of the night was fine. We stayed there all evening, partied down, and he was there. And every time I would catch his gaze, he was smiling. Mm. Mm. No more negative energy, no tension, and uh, we had a great night. Mm. And so, um, you know, I like to tell that story because, um, you know, I think it's very, very true that often in situations like that where, where people are you know coming with a negative attitude, I always have a choice on how I want to deal with that. I can choose. Sometimes I think people choose to be offended. And a lot of that comes from whatever level of work they've done or not done on their own wounding. And, um, and so sometimes we lead with our wounding. He was leading with whatever his wounding was. And I chose to interrupt that by not leading with whatever my wounding was mm. and uh and it totally changed the entire dynamic of that situation and we we do have a choice yeah we do have a choice of how to you know we can either respond or we can react mm-hmm. and it all depends on you know what we desire to get out of the situation yeah so oh beautiful story i love that i love that so much Well, thank you so much for sharing yourself with Nevada County and with us here on Bravehearts. Right on. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, 
Observations from a Working Poet. Finally, enough smoke blew away that we could go swimming again. The air quality index was 68 instead of 243, and my eyes didn't sting just taking out the trash. I picked up my tall friend at her house, and we met our petite friend on the boat ramp, a ramp which seems two miles long because the water in the lake is so low now. I've been dreading the moment the end of the boat ramp is exposed, and today, walking into the water up to my waist, I could feel the last edge of it with my toes. The water's not clear on weekends because boats roil up all the silt, so I couldn't see what was happening down there, but it felt like rocks after the edge of the concrete. I'm afraid at a certain point in all endeavors, you reach the moment where the rubber meets the road. In my swimming life, this is that moment. I'm not proud of it, and I'm not happy about it, but I know myself well enough to understand that in about 10 days, I will not be able to go up to the lake anymore to swim. It turns out I'm a snob. Maybe you thought so already, but I try not to be a snob in general. I try to dismantle my snobbish tendencies and understand what's behind them. This doesn't work regarding aesthetics, though. I can't rent badly designed apartments, even when they're perfectly convenient to the restaurant where I work. I can't buy clothes that fit well and are on sale when they're not the perfect shade of green. Kelly green, forest green, forget it. I know, after long experience, I won't wear them. The color has to be a tealy blue-green or sage with just the right amount of gray in it. This is like having really good ears so you're irritated by high-pitched noises no one else can hear. It might look like a desirable skill and it can be enjoyable, but it's also debilitating. You can't just turn it off. As a person of size, part of what I love about swimming is it's easeful. The water is the only place I'm physically light and strong. Once those big rocks appear at the bottom of the boat ramp, it will be awkward for me to reach the water, a problem that might be surmountable with water shoes or old carpeting laid over the rocks. But now there are so many islands in the lake and dead tree trunks sticking out, and the shoreline is so brown and bleak, the balance of fun and beauty to effort and ugliness has tipped. Adding this rigmarole to getting in and out makes it too unpleasant to face every day. This happened about five years ago, too, and I made do with a combination of public pools, river swimming holes, lakes that are farther away, and walking when it was cool enough. I don't know what I'll do now, with smoke and germs to factor in, but I'll think of something. The color of Scott's Flat Lake, or the many different colors on different days, I should say, are all the right tealy blue-greens and dark gray blues and pale turquoises for me. I'm going to miss them terribly. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
And that concludes our newscast for tonight, Thursday, August 12th, 2021. The KVMR Evening News airs Monday through Friday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. and is available on our website at kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Thanks very much for listening. Be safe. Have a great evening. Ha <laughs> ha